This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to Trumpet Hour. This is Friday, February the 9th. I'm Philip Nice with four of our Philadelphia Trumpet writers, Richard Palmer covering Europe, Jeremiah Jacques covering Asia, Mihailo Zekic covering the Middle East, and Andrew Miller covering Anglo-America. This week, we are going to take it in that order, and uh, Richard Palmer, back from a, a trip, is with us to cover Europe. Mr. Palmer, can you give us the, the top stories out of Europe? I get a lot of questions about the alternative for Deutschland, this new upstart party in Germany. We tend to refer to them as far-right, even neo-Nazi. Understandably, that does get questioned because in the mainstream media, Donald Trump also gets referred to as far-right and neo-Nazi and just like Hitler. So I do think it's reasonable to ask, okay, is are they really that bad or is this biased media spin? And I, th- I think there's one story this week that is perhaps more important than it would be otherwise because it really answers that question very simply and directly. So the public or the private broadcasting company RTL sent in some reporters undercover to a joint AFD and then AFD youth group event. It's called Hike for Heroes is the event to commemorate German victims of World War II. So the heroes are Nazi soldiers that uh, it's it's on the anniversary of a battle with the Soviet Union that, that the Nazis lost. So I think that alone tells you a lot about the alternative for Deutschland uh, without even getting into what these undercover reporters found. But they were there, they interviewed some of the activists, and one of the activists said, have you ever asked yourself why the Jews have been hated by all the nations who had anything to do with them for the past 4,000 years? The solutions with the Jews would be to allot them an area where they will all go. So some pretty overt uh, anti-Semitism. They talked, another activist talked about how uh, immigrants with a migrant background should be uh, put in a ghetto and basically starved or had live on reduced rations until they decide to go back. And he said, that talking about just ordinary people, he says, yes, in my view, there should be a certain readiness to commit violence on this subject. Okay. If I were the state, I would try to recruit volunteers who are willing to shoot even women and children. Wow. There was another set of activists that talked about how Mein Kampf should be made compulsory reading in schools and that it should be a law that couples have have a minimum of four children to revive the German race. So this is this is there have been neo-Nazi parties within Germany before, and they have had like three percent of the vote at most. This is this is a quarter of the vote in some places, 20 percent of the vote, maybe even a third of the vote in some provinces. And these are the views that are that are being expressed. And these this article wasn't really surprising to me. I I get uh, emails from Compact. Compact is like a magazine kind of by AFD for the AFD. It's not an official magazine, but that is very much their target audience. It's a professional, glossy magazine, you know, in high production, and it's full of this kind of thing. Uh, and I think most Americans would be absolutely shocked to read Compact and some of the things that go into there. So this really is, the, the, the AFD is not Donald Trump. It's not Germany's Donald Trump. It really is a very extreme organization 
Uh, and I thought those undercover reporters at RTL did a great job revealing what is rising in Germany. Another important story from Germany that I'll just cover very quickly, they decided to send another 150 soldiers to Kosovo. That was announced this week. So there's 90 German soldiers there already. Kosovo is trying to basically take that there's a northern province in Kosovo that is majority Serb. You get this every time a country breaks away, there's always a smaller part of that breakaway bit that would like to stay part of the the previous. So this part would prefer to be part of Serbia uh, and Kosovo some kind of limited Serbianness was tolerated for this province and Kosovo is trying to get them more under control. This is leading to more friction. Uh, and so Germany sending in more troops as you start to get more violence going on in that region. Uh, they're, they're very alert to, to what is going on there. We have a whole booklet, Germany's conquest of the Balkans, but in there, Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry writes, Germany, the peace broker in Kosovo, the future administrator of Kosovo and the whole Balkan Peninsula will rule the European continent and extend its powerful reach globally to impact all nations. You know, it's trying to get control of this area and you, you see a, a long-range plan there and they're not going to allow this to be jeopardized by that violence. Uh, and there's a potential here for Vladimir Putin to potentially cause more trouble in Kosovo. And, and if that happens, you know, they want to have soldiers there ready. Kosovo is such a turning point in in recent decades that that I mean before there was the war in Europe in Ukraine there was the war in Europe in Kosovo and because the United States was involved and and uh, you know it was we we viewed it portrayed it as this this righteous war uh, against Serbian genocide uh, one of the early earlier trumpet covers is where are the Kosovo killing fields. Um, where, where, where Mr. Fleury pointed out, there's something wrong about what's go- about the United States and what it did in Kosovo in helping Germany, flying alongside Luftwaffe pilots uh, and destroying the the Serbian control of of the Balkans for German strategic possession or you know strategic uh, sphere of influence over over the Balkans. So so that it's just it's just interesting to me how that story keeps being important. <laughs> it's, it could be something that seems like it's in the rearview mirror but but it's not. It's a crucial strategic move by Germany. Uh, your main topic is also about Germany. That's right. We've been watching what's going on in Yemen very closely. We had a cover of our trumpet print edition on these attacks in the Red Sea. That was the the February edition with the the dread Red Sea as the cover text there that had an article by by Mr. Flurry. And one of the key things that he focused on, on what is going on in Yemen, is, well, watch for this to accelerate Germany to being more aggressive, more militaristic. And we got a story that tied directly into that this week where the frigate Hessen has departed for the Red Sea. So Germany is getting now militarily involved in the fight against the Houthis. This is a bit of a turnaround for Germany. They cut off arms sales to Saudi Arabia several years ago, specifically because Saudi Arabia was fighting the Houthis. They reversed that a few weeks back. They started some significant arms sales to Saudi Arabia. And then now they're sending off this ship, getting getting much more involved in this themselves. A senior official in the German Ministry of Defense said that Europe will take responsibility for the security of the sea routes and one of the most important trade routes for Germany and Europe. It is absolutely clear that the mission is essential. And one of the things we've pointed to throughout this, this crisis that I think is significant is the way that America put together a military mission. 
ask for volunteers. Europe was absolutely not interested. They didn't. They you had a number of countries say, uh, I think Spain in particular, you know, yes, we'll contribute, but not to an American-led unilateral mission. And so now you've got Germany's getting involved, but as part of a U.S. Uh, an EU mission, they won't be. They don't want to work under or with the United States. So we talked about German strategy in the Balkans in the '90s. And now we're talking about German strategy uh, in in the Red Sea. Uh, it's it's becoming more uh, more open. I mean, a, a frigate is not a fleet. It's a, it's a, mm-hmm. a frigate is a, a smaller than a destroyer. So it's a it's a small ish. Uh, warship, uh, but but you're saying this is an indication of something larger, and it's an important step for the German Navy. Remember that you know, Britain, and I think to a certain extent the United States, the Navy is kind of certainly in Britain it's the senior service. Uh, I think yep. the United States, I think much more American power rests upon the Navy than most Americans realize. Uh, it is what keeps the trade routes open. Germany, of course, the focus has been tended to be on the army and even the air force above. The Navy, they've, they've got much smaller capabilities there. And uh, the, uh, vice, the German vice admiral, he called it the most serious deployment of a, de- of a German naval unit for many decades. So we are seeing it is a significant step in capabilities for the German Navy to be deploying overseas, protecting trade routes, uh, having to develop all the supply chain and, and bases and, and the boring, crucial stuff of logistics that goes with this. Uh, so what you are seeing is just yet another step in Germany becoming a military nation that does deploy overseas and that does uh, that does get involved beyond its borders. And this is you know, this is in context with other events that have forced other steps. You know, we talked about Germany's first a permanent base abroad that they setting up in Lithuania. That was announced just a month or two ago in response to what Russia is doing. So you're seeing you know, there for the last 70, 80 years, there has been a deliberate policy of Germany not being a militarily normal nation and saying we don't want Germany to act and respond militarily in the way that other nations do because of their history there. That hang up has been has gone, I think, in the minds of most people in the West. That hang up is increasingly disappearing in the minds of, of most Germans or many Germans. And so now we're seeing the results of that. And this is just the beginning of Germany being much quicker to get to get more involved. And this is this is a key event that we've been prophesying. I mean, you mentioned early trumpet print editions, and that this is why we had a whole booklet on Yugoslavia and uh, why we had so many early Trump, Trump, German trumpet print focuses on that. Because you zoom in on what is happening in Yugoslavia, and it revealed this change of direction in Germany. You re- it revealed almost like a connivingness to go in and manufacture an excuse, break up a country uh, for their own political gains. Uh, the UN, I think the breakup of Yugoslavia, I think it was a Hans-Dietrich Genscher, I think it was, the German foreign minister. It was called like his war uh, because he because of the role that Germany played in making that war happen. It exposed that this spirit of going out and conquering other countries is not dead. And so when you right. see Germany reviving that military cap- capability, then you know, that is what is happening next. And so this is a, a, an important part of what is happening in Europe. And it's exactly happening the way that the Bible said that it would. Daniel chapter 11 talks about a king of the south that pushes against the king of the north. And this is referring to a radical Islamist power led by Iran. And it pushes, it provokes, it prods. 
this uh, very violently, this German-led king of the north. And that is what is happening right now in Yemen. And you go back several years and Mr. Flurry in the mid-2010s was talking about watch Yemen, what is, what is going to happen here. This is a very critical place for, for hurting Europe. It's going to provoke a response. And we are seeing that happen right now. And it's going to happen more later. There's going to be a much bigger response. But we're watching that Bible prophecy play out right now. And you can be forgiven for thinking, well, the United States, uh, even under Joe Biden, will sail a carrier strike group right offshore of Iran, right offshore of China, you know, 7,500 sailors and Marines. The second largest air force in the world is the United States Navy. And it has all this power. And yet you tune into the trumpet, trumpet hour and we say that it's going to do it's going to be ineffectual against Iran. It's going to be ineffectual against China. Germany sails, uh, you know, medium size uh, warship to to this part of the of the world. And we say, focus on this, <laughs> you know, pay attention to this. And there's a reason there's a there's a strong reason for that. And and it's it's uh there's a there's a direct reason why we will call your attention to certain actions taken by Germany in particular, um, and you need to understand why that is. So we've covered that on the update on the Trump.com German frigate heads toward the Red Sea, but you'll you'll read much more, and also the February trumpet that you mentioned there, Mr. Palmer, the battle for the Red Sea by trumpet editor in chief Gerald Flurry. And you'll understand why we focus in on certain events and and why we feel like we can tell you what the outcomes of those events, easily overlooked in many cases, will be. Our next region is Asia. We'll talk about the uh, specific event that happened in Asia in the roundtable discussion. But right now we want a rundown of Asian news. And Jeremiah Jacques, can you provide that to us, please? Sure, yes. First, an update on Russia's war on Ukraine. This week, the Russians began storming the city of Avdiivka with significantly expanded forces. Russia's uh, push for this city have been underway since back in October, but now they're focusing more and more on it, pressing from all directions. And this comes after the United States has stopped supporting Ukraine. So the artillery and ammunition are getting thinner, and it's hard to see how Ukraine could be able to hold on to Avdivka much longer. And if Russia captures this city, it'll be the first significant change along the front line in many months. This war has, of course, been raging, but the lines have barely moved at all. So this would be quite notable for that reason. And if Russia captures it, it would also be a victory that Vladimir Putin can point to just ahead of the presidential elections coming up in a couple of weeks. So a Pyrrhic victory, I think, since there's really no strategic value to the city, and since it comes at a cost of more than 13,000 casualties for the Russians. But this victory would still be enough to give Russia's propagandists plenty of material to lionize the dear leader of Russia. So that's really why we're seeing the Russians make such a big push here right now. And then another story here about China's judicial system. A new report shows that the Chinese government carries out more state-sanctioned executions each year than all other nations on earth combined. This report says the number is at least 8,000 people per year that the Chinese Communist Party kills. And if you look at the rest of the world, all put together, it's less than 900 per year. So China is head and shoulders above all the others. And some of these executions are for heinous crimes, but many of those killed are guilty only of being politically against 
the Chinese Communist Party. And China's justice system is infamous for having a 99.9% conviction rate. Government operatives are also known to torture prisoners in order to extract confessions. And once a person is deemed guilty, he is usually executed within 72 hours. So it's very much a guilty until proven innocent system. And almost no time is allowed for a person to try to disprove charges. China even has execution vans that it drives around to, to kill the accused. So this just gives us a window into the Chinese Communist Party. The, the party will not tolerate any vestige of resistance from the Chinese people. So great numbers are just eliminated. And it really shows the darkness of this evil dictatorship. The Chinese Communist Party has no judiciary. Like you look at you look at it from the outside, and there's there's a judge who sits there, and there's a courtroom, and and so forth. And so you think, well, they just have like a Chinese version of our judiciary. That is not the case, uh, as you're saying there. It does not have a judiciary. It does not have a rule of law. It has the rule of the party. I received a book from my dad this week about uh, the the Chinese Communist Party, and it was written in the 50s uh, when there was much less varnish and much less sophistication uh, in how the Chinese Communist Party, ruler of the world's most populous nation, uh, how it operates. And and the, it's, it's, the premise is whatever is good for the party is is good and whatever is bad for the party is bad. So when we're dealing with this, you know, rising power over there controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, most Americans have no idea what it is we're dealing with. And uh, I th- I think you brought that out well with the facts and I was going to th- mention that fact that has just stuck with me since you reported it or commentated on it uh months ago or maybe even years ago now, but that 99.9% conviction rate with a van outside ready to carry out the execution. Yeah, lethal injection. They put you in the van, administer the shot, and it all happens, you know, very quickly. Well, that's uh, that's the rundown. We want to get... uh, Focus in on one of the main stories from Asia that's that's been developing this week. Can you hit us with that? Yes. Yeah, the big story is that Russia and China are making major gains in their development of satellite-killing technology. That is according to a new report that was produced by the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Space Force. Um, this report calls a lot of attention to satellites that China's putting up in orbit, and these are dirigible. So they can be steered around by operatives on the ground. And the satellites are also equipped with a robotic arm that can be controlled by those same operatives. So these things can literally be maneuvered over to another satellite, grab it, and then disable it or tow it out of orbit or blind it somehow. And uh, some of these satellites have been observed navigating up to and interacting with other satellites in orbit. So far, they've only approached other Chinese satellites. But uh, experts say that there's basically nothing that would prevent them from navigating up to those of other nations. And the Russians and Chinese often place their satellites in a position that would allow them very easy access to some of the U.S.'s most important satellites. We see that it's in a similar orbit to one of our high-value assets for the U.S. government. And so we'll continue like we always do to continue to update that and track that. That's really irresponsible behavior. 
That was four-star General James Dickinson of the U.S. Space Command talking there about a Russian satellite that was recently launched and placed um, into a part of orbit where it could easily access a vital U.S. satellite. So that's very chilling to see China and Russia apparently preparing to use satellites in space to destroy other satellites. And then the report also draws attention to weapons on the ground. Weapons, you know, on Earth that Russia and China have designed to take out satellites in orbit. So these are missiles. Some of them are jammers. Some of them are directed energy weapons. Part of this report says China has multiple ground-based laser systems of varying power that could blind or damage satellite sensors. By the mid to late 2020s, Beijing may have higher power systems capable of damaging satellites. So, you know, here we see Russia and China have several different ways that they could disrupt or destroy satellites from other nations. Um, some onlookers may suspect that a fear of mutually assured destruction would prevent Russia and China from ever actually attacking these American satellites, since, of course, Russia and China also have many satellites in orbit that America could target. But the reality is America has far more satellites in orbit than any other nation. We have more than 4,700 of them up there. Um, and that's more than all of the other countries on Earth combined. In fact, it's about twice as many as all the other countries on Earth combined. And we rely on them to an unmatched degree, including militarily. You know, um, the U.S. military relies on them for all kinds of navigation, reconnaissance, targeting systems, and communication. So this means that the U.S. has way more to lose than China or Russia. And for that reason, I think you could see them willing to risk their own satellites in order to destroy America's. We live out in the semi-rural, pretty rural area, and so it's dark uh, at night um, without any city, city lights nearby. And I've learned what a satellite looks like. It took me a long time to realize what, that's what I was seeing way up there. They have a, a certain uh, steady glow as they or far above what an airplane could fly, the, the light doesn't blink because you're actually looking at the reflection of the sun off the surface of the satellite. Mm -hmm. So they, they have kind of a unique uh, appearance. And when you realize there's, what did you say, 4,700 yeah. <laughs> that, that the United States uh, military is relying on, but also the society, you know, if, yes. the, if they can be targeted to break down the society, then 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 that's uh that's also that's also a threat um th this does kind of remind me of a few things that the trumpet has talked about before yes this actually uh you know really speaks to several of the the big trends that we're watching but i think one of the main ones that that we could uh you know really see come to life with this is well bible prophecy talks about a time in the future when america and some of its allies will be besieged by russia and china and some of their allies, Isaiah 23, and um, also Deuteronomy paint a picture of this. And then Isaiah 59 adds some really specific detail about this, this future time of, of uh, calamity. In verses 9 and 10, the people of America are shown to be basically stripped of vision. It says, quote, we wait for light, but behold obscurity. We wait for brightness, but we walk in darkness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. So, you know, you can already see this happening in a spiritual sense in America today. Just, you know, 
groping around in a, in a horrible state of spiritual blindness. But the vision that we see missing in this prophecy, maybe that could also include some physical types of seeing, including all of the sight that's provided by America's 4,700 satellites. So I just think when you, when you put these scriptures all together, it makes these, uh, these new technologies that China and Russia are developing just all the more concerning. We've also mentioned uh, more in relation to computer technology um, that the the sound of alarm goes out and and yet no none goes to battle and you know what would cause that situation where people are aware that there is a uh, a threat that that needs to be responded to militarily and yet and and actually get the alarm sounded uh, however that's done but but then none goes to battle no 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 one even fights the battle and. Uh, I think the vulnerability of society is part of that, but but actual real technological threats are, are certainly part of that. Uh, I would think that uh, satellites being part of the information uh, transmission system yeah. uh, of the internet as a part of it, not a part that the average person that uses too much, but certainly the military and so forth uh, could be could be part of that. You've pointed to in the notes that you provided to me, the Isaiah's End Time Vision. So that's a booklet by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. Isaiah's End Time Vision, you can get that at thetrumpet.com slash library. And uh, you're working on an article about it. That's right, yes. Uh, hopefully in the next Philadelphia Trumpet print edition, we'll have uh, an article that um, really goes into a lot of the specific threats posed by these new and developing Russian and Chinese technologies and just shows how incredibly vulnerable America's space-based assets are to them. So go to thetrumpet.com, go to thetrumpet.com slash library for Isaiah's End Time Vision and many other other books and booklets uh, that you can avail yourself of there. And also make sure you're subscribed to the Philadelphia Trumpet, also there at thetrumpet.com. We move on now to the Middle East region. Mihailo Zekic, give us a rundown of the top stories from the Middle East. Yeah, so a couple of stories that relate to Israel's ongoing war in Gaza. On February 6th, Axios reported, citing uh, anonymous sources, that Israel and Hezbollah, the Lebanese uh, terror group, militia, whatever you want to call them, have come to a, not a formal deal, but an an informal understanding on how to defuse the situation on the border between Israel and Lebanon. And supposedly the United States and several European countries are the mediators in this deal. Israel has been trying to force Hezbollah back past the Latani River, which is about um, 18 miles or 30 kilometers north of the border. Hezbollah has, of course, been skirmishing with the Israeli Defense Forces since October in support with their fellow Iranian proxy Hamas. This deal wouldn't give Israel everything they want. Uh, Hezbollah promises to only remove all their forces about five to six miles away from the border, and Israel promises to send some of its reservists back. We'll see if this actually does bring any de-escalation. The underlying problems that are causing threats to war to surface are still there, and it's certainly within Israel's interest to remove Hezbollah once and for all all after they, what they saw Hamas did in October. So we'll keep our eyes on that. So what's the main story that you've got for us from the Middle East? Well, this one's technically in Europe, but it involves uh, the Middle East in a pretty heavy way. I just saw this story uploaded this morning. 
Now, supposing you were a small business owner or you owned a startup, you're having a bit of financial problems and you want to get your business going. What is the original task of a bank? We lend and we borrow money. It's that simple. I have the feeling that over time, this has become less and less important for many banks. Fewer and fewer companies or private individuals do have access to bank loans right now. And if you're a startup, you almost have no chance at all to get a loan. It is our ambition to help more people getting access to the financial services they really need. That was an advertisement from Varengold Bank in Hamburg, Germany. If you were in such a situation and you heard that, that, that would be a pretty nice sounding offer to you to get your business going. And so you decide to start doing banking with them. But what if you found out that doing banking with this company would lead to this? That was a training video put up by the Houthi terrorist group in Yemen a few days ago. Politico just put up an article basically claiming through anonymous intelligence sources that Varngold Bank in Hamburg was basically a front company to do business with the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Iran's hair exporting army throughout the Middle East. It's not a particularly large bank. In 2015, they had about total assets of 600 million euros. It's not Deutsche Bank. That's still a lot of money. There were warning signs that something was up when the bank was uh, flagged by the German government uh, and their financial regulator for money laundering last year. But we didn't know what exactly the circumstances were with who they were doing business with, what kind of reasons they were laundering the money. And according to Politico, it was to fund the Houthis and Hezbollah in in Lebanon. Uh, they're cited too specifically in, in their article, two Turkish companies that are sanctioned by the United States government for one of them for supporting the IRGC and the other one for helping Iran sell sanctioned oil to China without the U.S. Uh, catching on. We talk about Iran's inroads into Europe, say, through sponsoring terror attacks or inspiring terror attacks. In this case, they're actually running a company. And again, it's not Deutsche Bank, but 600 million is 600 million. It's a pretty influential group. And that will be uh, the equivalent of for everybody listening in Oklahoma, where our headquarters is, that would be equivalent of First Liberty Bank, uh, which is comparable in size, being an Iranian proxy funding the wars in the Middle East, funding what we just heard right now from the in Yemen, in Gaza, in Lebanon. I'm sure the people doing business with this bank in Germany, the small business owners, the startups that they're advertising to, to say the least, are completely taken aback and don't like what this entity is doing with their money right so let's talk, sure about, let's talk about that reaction course. you've got you've got a a uh, iranian um you've got an iranian controlled bank in europe um and if you can give us like what so what does this mean does this mean that iran and europe are cozy you know so cozy that you could have this uh irgc terrorist Basically, a terrorist bank in Europe 
uh, operating. Um, is this something that's going to that we're going to see more of, or are we going to see a backlash against it? Oh, totally a backlash. I'm sure that's sending a lot of alarm bells in the intelligence community in Berlin. How do we let this happen? Iran obviously is trying to take advantage of us. Iran is more of a threat than we realize. You can be sure they're going to be stepping up their response, even just domestically, in cracking down on some of these activities, too, and most likely abroad as well. And this is exactly what the Trump has been expecting for decades there's a prophecy. Sometimes uh, I, I say it so often I could quote it verbatim <laughs> if I wanted to in Daniel 11 verse 40 that refers to in this end time a king of the south and a king of the north clashing. The rest of the prophecy going into chapter 12 shows that this will lead into World War III. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Jeff Fleury, has consistently pointed to the King of the North being a European bloc led by Germany and the King of the South being radical Islam led by Iran. And specifically, it says that Iran's provocation, the, the starting catalyst for this conflict is a push, a push against the King of the North. That word push it, in the Hebrew, it relates to as being like gored with an animal. It's it hurts. It's. It's something more painful and, shall we say, even more petty and provocative than a normal attack. There's a lot that goes into this push, and we have a lot of material about the different aspects of it. But certainly sponsoring something as much as a, a 600 million euro worth bank in the heart of German industry funding Germany's enemies to do these kinds of attacks, that's a huge provocation. It certainly gives a big black eye to the German intelligence community, and that's this kind of activity certainly contributes to why we expect Iran and Germany to clash with each other very soon. So that's at the trumpet.com slash trends, Iran and Europe heading for a clash of civilizations. Uh, go to that trends section and, and take advantage of that. You can go to that article, you can uh, click on it, and and there near the top, you'll you'll see a timeline of all the little events, all the little stories week by week that are playing into this particular trend. I mean, I remember when the Iran nuclear deal was happening, uh, Europe quickly signed up to buy billions of dollars worth of, of uh, or sell rather, billions of dollars worth of aircraft to Iran uh, because it now had all this this cash and, and, and it looked like they were Getting cozier, and and there, and week by week, you'll see events and and news reports that seem to indicate that they're, you know, working together, or they're cozy, or they're comfortable. Uh, but the trumpet has a very specific uh, outcome that we're looking for, and you'll read what that outcome is and why, uh, and the events that support it at uh, thetrumpet.com/trends. All right, now we move to the Anglo-America region. Andrew Miller, you watched that region, uh, which includes basically America and the other uh, English-speaking nations principally. What are the, the main stories that we've uh, seen this week? King Charles III was diagnosed with cancer. Special Prosecutor Jack Smith's indictment against Donald Trump's actions on January 6, 2021 was removed from the D.C. District Court's calendar. And the U.S. National Security Agency was caught buying Americans' internet browsing information without warrants. Each of those could be uh, a major story. Each of those definitely connects to um, uh, a number of major stories. But uh, I think probably this one is that you've got as your main is going to affect, could, could affect all of us. 
Yeah, my main story this week is a big economic story. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell gave a 60 minutes interview this week, talked for an hour, uh, as uh, is the namesake <laughs> of that program, uh, warning Americans that they should be prepared for more bank failures, which is a big a big announcement because if you'll remember, there were three major bank failures last year. There weren't as many banks as failed as in 2008, so it wasn't as big a crisis in 2008. But the banks that did fail were quite a bit bigger than most of the banks that failed in 2008. So it's uh, so some just some major ripples throughout the the U.S. banking industry. Um, Janet Yellen, who was the Treasury Secretary, came out and made a, a pretty disturbing announcement that the government was going to bail out the banks that were too big to fail uh, without actually defining what too big to fail means. So um, Americans across the nation did probably the logical thing to keep their money safe <laughs> and pulled their money out from their local credit union in the tune of like trillions of dollars uh, and put it in J.P. Morgan Chase or Bank of America or some of the biggest banks that they assumed would be too big to fail. This is what happened in 2023 or this happened this week? This happened in 2023. Yeah, yeah. So this is the background. In 2023, is like over the past several months, they've had just huge influxes of money right. from small banks into big banks. And so what Jerome Powell was addressing this week is there's actually another financial institution – the New York Community Bank Corps, which has lost millions of dollars in stock dividends this week. Basically, what New York Community Bank Corps did is before the COVID pandemic, they invested a whole bunch of money in office buildings. Uh, then when the COVID pandemic came and it switched over to remote work, those buildings became much less valuable than they were previously. Uh, and so they've lost a bunch of money. Uh, they've um, uh, caused uh, some big, uh, reported some big losses, which shook the stock market. And so Jerome Powell responding to that was saying that, like, okay, yes, yeah, like there are still going to be uh, some adjustments in the real estate market going forward as higher interest rates bring property values down and things like that, yeah. that may cause more banks to go under. And so he he clarified. He's like he's like we're not expecting a two thousand eight style collapse or anything like that. He's like, but we are expecting more banks to be centralized into the bit, uh, bigger banks. So basically, so they're not expecting a collapse, but they're expecting like the, basically this trend of centralizing small banks under big banks to continue. Right, and we're, I mean, two thousand eight, we we crossed the line in terms of government intervention in in the banking system. And uh, and then again, it, we started heading into a crisis in 2023. Is in March, Silicon Valley Bank, I remember, was one of the ones, and then there were, were two or three others that uh, were were in in danger. And then and then the the federal government came in and p basically picked winners and losers, and the big banks, which survived 2008. Benefited from an influx of cash, as you said, as as people withdrew from smaller banks. Um, so there's there's this this distortion that's happening in the in the banking system 
this could get as bad as 2008, depending on how the dominoes of the different banks fall, because these banks have investments in each other as well. What are you looking for the outcome to be, whether it's from this uh, New York bank situation or whether the, it comes a little bit later? What's what's the outcome we're, we're monitoring for? Well, I think the big immediate threat is a political one, actually, hmm. um, in that uh, if you're familiar with the 10 planks of Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, one of them I think is plank number five, uh, is centralization of all credit in the hands of the state. Now, I don't think Jerome Powell is deliberately trying to centralize all credit in the hands of mistake. I think he's just trying to <laughs> navigate the American economy through these rocky waters that have come in the wake of the COVID pandemic. But there are definitely those in the Biden administration who want the central of uh of all credit in the hands of the state. We drew attention last year to um, a woman named Sole Omarova. Yeah. Who was Biden's pick to be comptroller yeah. of the currency. Uh, and Republicans didn't let it happen because she'd actually was literally like part of like a communist youth league in Kazakhstan as a youth, wrote her thesis on Marxist economics and was saying that America needs to abolish all banks except the Federal Reserve and actually have the Federal Reserve open up personal banking accounts that you can use so that there would only be one bank. Now, fortunately, Republicans kept this woman from office. Uh, it's a pretty low bar. <laughs> <laughs> that they they were able to meet to keep a, an outright active Marxist right. from being that comptroller. But there are definitely those in government uh, further left than Jerome Powell who are taking this from the standpoint like, all right, well, we don't have the political will to disnationalize banking outright. But if we can let this banking crisis keep rolling mm -hmm. uh, and keep forcing more Americans to pull their money from the small banks, put them in the bank bank banks, keep morsing more small banks out of business, we can more gradually move America towards plank five of the Communist Manifesto where all credit is centralized in the hands of the state, which is interesting prophetically because um, the late Herbert W. Armstrong uh, made what uh, our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Floyd, called his greatest personal prophecy – Personal prophecy is not a prophecy explicitly stated in the Bible, but it's like a second-tier prophecy uh, that's based on other prophecies in the Bible. So the prophecies in the Bible are about a, a United States of Europe are going to conquer the United States of America. That's in the Bible. Revelation 17, Hosea 5, and many other scriptures show that. Mr. Armstrong's personal prophecy, just looking at the state of affairs and wondering, like, well, how is the European Union going to be powerful enough to conquer the United States? Uh, and he predicted that he thought it would be a banking crisis that would knock America down mm -hmm. from its current power and mm -hmm. force Europe to unite. Mm -hmm. So this has been something that we have been looking for for decades, a banking crisis that causes Europe to rise and America to be destroyed. Uh, interestingly, uh, now you've got figures in the radical Obama-Biden administration who, like Soleil Omavara and others, seem to be wanting to provoke that prophesied crisis on purpose. 
Right. Not in their mind so that the European Union will rise up and conquer us, but so that that crisis will put so many banks out of business that you can get something like what uh, these radicals are recommending to where like the Federal Reserve is the only bank in America. And so I don't necessarily think Jerome Powell's in on that plot um, if there if there is an organized conspiracy. Uh, But the fact that he's getting up there telling 60 Minutes that the banking crisis isn't over, uh, expect more little banks to go under or be bought out for more big banks shows that that uh, that attempt to centralize credit in the hands of the state is still well underway. Uh, and Bible prophecy at least strongly indicates that it is going to get out of hand and not end with uh, an American Goss Bank <laughs> uh, like like existed in Soviet Union, uh, but end with uh, America no longer being a superpower and actually conquered by a superpower that's even stronger. That's something that you could you could visualize. America just nationalized its banking system is an article on the trumpet.com. The title is America just nationalized its banking system if you want to look at that. And that's not to say that uh, you know the banking system we had was all fine and perfect before you know the, before the past you know few few years came along. Uh, clearly a lot of problems in in uh, that banking system. Mr. Armstrong, you mentioned him. I mean, he talked about worshiping the almighty dollar and and uh, it seems like that idol is going to come come crashing down, if you will. But it is more in line with the Bible to have individuals decide whether or not they buy and sell than to have a central government decide what everyone buys and sells. America is in danger of and is in the process of losing that freedom and, and the benefit of it. So that's the Anglo-America Week in Review. Next up is our roundtable discussion. Stay with us. Trumpet Hour, the Week in Review. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. We finished with the roundtable discussion. It's a discussion about something that many people, maybe at your place of work or, or wherever you might be, have been discussing kind of all week. And uh, that's the interview between Tucker Carlson and the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. It is absolutely out of the question. You just don't have to be any kind of analyst. It goes against common sense to get involved in some kind of a global war. And a global war will bring all humanity to the brink of destruction. It's obvious. Yes, what we just heard was uh, Mr. Putin speaking about how he didn't want to start World War III. That's obviously been on a lot of minds since... uh, the war in Ukraine started in 2022. Tucker Carlson has become the first Western media figure to interview Putin since the war began. He interviewed him on February the 6th. His interview, which took over two hours, and most of that was Putin talking, saying quite a bit of things about World War Three, about uh, 
his view of Russian history, including almost half an hour of his monologue on how uh, Russia became a civilization and how Ukraine's a part of that, and a lot more. This has obviously caught a lot of people's attentions. Some people are thinking, well, how could Tucker even do this? A lot of people are wondering, what, what is Putin trying to prove with this particular interview? There's a lot of things to dissect in this interview, which is what we're going to do today. Right. Yeah, that's, it brings up questions of journalism. It brings up questions of, of international relations, obviously, and warfare. Jeremiah Jacques, you cover the Asia region, and uh, you've seen that first bit he was talking about there, about a history lesson from Vladimir Putin, and you have thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, I would just say that I found this interview very unsurprising. If anything, I'm surprised that it didn't happen sooner. Russian state TV has been featuring Tucker Carlson for years, showing clips of him almost daily since Tucker often recites Russian talking points. And uh, back when Tucker was on Fox News, he actually told a guest that he was on Russia's side in the war. He said, quote, why shouldn't I root for Russia, which I am, end quote. So, you know, it's no surprise at all that Vladimir Putin would want him to come to Moscow and let Putin have kind of a, a megaphone, you know, really a, an amplified mouthpiece to get Putin's version of events into the minds of as many Americans and Europeans and Russians and everybody as he possibly can. Putin wants the world to think that Russia is ultimately a peace-loving nation that has not been treated fairly and that it's just trying to help people in need. That is essentially what we heard from him in this two-hour interview. And if more Americans hear that version of things and believe it, then we'll see more Americans wanting to violate the treaty that we made with Ukraine when we you know, agreed in the mid-90s to come to Ukraine's aid if it was invaded. So, so you can really see why Putin wants people to believe the warped Russian view. He thinks it'll cause more political dysfunction in the U.S. and Europe, and that that will make his conquest of a sovereign nation easier. But at the same time, I think the interview ended up not accomplishing very much of that, mainly because it was boring. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Putin gave this heavily revised version of history starting back in the Jurassic era, I think, and <laughs> coming up to the fact that Poland was responsible for starting World War II. That was a wild layer cake of falsehoods. Well, they there. were responsible for starting World War II both because they collaborated with the Nazis right. and because they refused to compromise <laughs> with the Nazis. Right, right. That I was there was some impressive mental gymnastics going on right there. And then to not mention Russia's own collaboration with the Nazi, I I almost laughed out loud at that part. Well, you know, when when Russia teaches the history of World War II to their students, they start it in 1941. They don't want to begin in 1939 because of the Nazi alliance that they made. Right. They were allied with the Nazis, but they've basically written that out of their history books. Now they say, oh yeah, this was only a, uh, a three or four year war. Let's not talk about 39 to 40. <laughs> and there are those enormous parades that we see that we think of when you think of Russia and you think of Red Square and the art, you know, these enormous military parades, aren't they celebrating victory over the Nazis? It's the only thing that Russia can hang its hat on in all of history is that they played a role in defeating the Nazis. So for them, they call it the Great Patriotic War, something like that. And they harp on it nonstop. By the way, America didn't really do anything. Neither <laughs> did Britain. It's just the Soviets with their indomitable Slavic will that defeated the, the Nazis single-handedly. So he, get, he got into some of that. But I just think that for a KGB man who's supposed to right. be kind of a master propagandist, it was surprisingly disjointed and rambling and didn't really pack many punches that would 
changed many minds, I think. Now, from the Tucker Carlson point of view, from the journalist's point of view, we were talking about this a little bit earlier. I don't know, but I think one of the main things is he wants to keep interviewing the big names. And like what we said, any publicity is good publicity. And according to what I'm seeing here, I'm not sure if this is accurate, but it says that he's gotten more than 42 million views on that uh, interview on Twitter. The full interview is on Tucker Carlson's website. But on Twitter, I'm seeing definitely dozens of millions, maybe as much as 100 million views. I'm seeing different numbers here. But I, I think that's definitely a motivation because we respect Tucker Carlson for a, a lot of reasons. He's willing to boldly say certain things about the regime in the United States, for example. But like we were talking about before, that doesn't absolve you of having to th- look at him and any journalist critically and evaluate what he's he's doing critically. So so do we think that it was it was good for him to even have the interview? Obviously, liberals, Democrats have said he shouldn't even be doing this interview because of Putin's character and the fact that he's the enemy if the United States is supporting Ukraine. What do we think? Should he have even done this interview? It definitely there's a theory going out here that the timing is very bad for the war effort in Ukraine. And I don't know if it was deliberate, but just this Wednesday, uh, Congress declined to accept another $66 billion aid injection. Now, granted, Congress has passed a number of aid injections, and we haven't spent all the way through that money yet. So maybe there's some wisdom. It's like, well, we'll, we'll wait and see after we've spent all the billions we've already sent over there if there's more needed. But I did see a Business Insider report that they're like, the fact that this interview is airing a couple days after that aid injection package could well be uh, something that both Putin and Carlson want to leverage to make sure that America does not send more aid to Ukraine. Because as horrible as what's happening in Ukraine is, I know here in America, even, even a lot of the conservatives I just talked to, they're, they're much more concerned about what's happening on U.S.-Mexico border than they are what the Ukraine-Russia border is. So America is losing its appetite for more aid bills to Ukraine and giving Putin a platform to give his side of a story right in the middle of a debate over more aid packages makes it less likely that there will even be more aid packages. Well, I would dispute that this is a propagandistic bumble for Putin. Obviously, there is a lot that maybe he doesn't realize how the American audiences will digest everything he said. But it's not just the American public that he's trying to reach with this. There's also the governments in Europe that I think he made a few interesting points that caught my eye. Like, for example, uh, Carlson asked uh, Putin if well, there's ethnic Hungarians living in Ukraine's extreme west. If you have a right to go and invade from the east, does Viktor Orban and Hungary have a right to go into the west? Have you ever asked, told him that he can have a part of it? And Putin said, quote, never, I have never told him, not a single time. We have not had any conversation on that 
end quote. But then as soon as he says that, he begins to say, but I know that there are Hungarians on the border who want to go back to their homeland. And I've spent many, many or I've spent time there before, like looking around and seeing these people that speak a different language. And I'm wondering, who are they? And they're Hungarians and they're proud of their traditions. And when they get infringed on the, the basically making the case that if Orban were to do that, he'd have a right. And I'm sure Orban's listening in, and I'm sure that's sending a message to him that if something were to happen, there is something on the table for him. He made a Putin that has made another interesting, uh, shall we say, again, this is my speculation, but he made an interesting discourse about Nord Stream 2, that pipeline that ran from Russia directly to Germany. Uh, Mr. Carlson asked him a few times, like, who do you think did it? Uh, looks like both of them agreed the CIA did it. And... Carlson asked, well, the Germans probably know that, but they're staying quiet about that. Why? And Putin said, well, this confuses me, too. But Germany is not going in its national interests. It's being pushed by the collective West. But there is one of those pipelines that's still being able to function. And Germany doesn't open it. But we're ready for you, Germany. Like, we're ready to open it. Like, we want we want to give you this gas. And the fact that he is saying that one suggests that he doesn't see Germany as as America or Britain as this country that could cannot really be reconciled to this. He still sees them as a potential partner and he still has stuff to offer with them and he still thinks they could accept that offer. Otherwise, why would he be spending that kind of effort when he could be saying other things to other audiences to help his image? Well, Russia partnering with Germany, we just talked about that a little bit about, you know, they them erasing that from the history books of World War. But that was one of the reasons the worst conflict in human history could get off and running was that Molotov-Ribbentrop agreement between yeah, Stalinist was... Russia and Germany. And and that's what Nord Stream is. That's what Nord Stream is, is a modern, very powerful version of the same type of thing, right? I, that was one of the things that he airbrushed from his history. You know, Poland was the big bad guys in his version of okay. history. And he neglected to mention the three separate times that Germany and Russia conspired to wipe Poland off the map. He also neglected to mention the largest genocide in the history of the planet, arguably, which was Russia's genocide of Ukrainians with between seven right. and 10 million people killed in his lengthy Russia-Ukrainian history. I'm not sure why that one slipped his mind. But coming <laughs> back to some of this issue about should Tucker Carlson go over there and, and, and that kind of thing. I mean, in some ways, I don't have a strong opinion either way. I do. What comes to mind watching Tucker Carlson is this quote from Herbert W. Armstrong where he said that we always are unable to see more than one enemy at one time. He mentioned this on several occasions, that you get this weakness in America. And I think that's that, to me, is, is Tucker Carlson's problem. Like, I think he is exceptionally good at seeing the enemy within the United States and the way that you have an Obama regime working to bring down the United States. And, and he just, he is tenacious at exposing that. And he's really good at doing that. But then... His worldview is kind of built around that to the extent that, well, if you're an enemy of that, like Putin, well, therefore you must be a good guy. And I think like Mihailo sent me a video earlier this week that I think is very revealing where he was in Spain and he was talking about how wonderful General Franco and the Spanish fascists were. Like his his view of the Spanish civil war is there were communists. The communists in that civil war were bad. Therefore, the fascists must be the good guys. And I think that's just fundamental. Like you have to look at the Spanish Civil War, and they're both bad guys. Like there are there are there, this is an evil world full of people that all tell lies, and there is not a good guy and a bad guy in every single conflict. 
I also think there are conflicts that have good guys and we can't make everything a big shade of gray, but it's that kind of oversimplification that gets in trouble. Switching gears, the other thing about Tucker Carlson's visit is, okay, well, should he do it? Should he be banned from making it? That's, I think, another kind of question. And what I've been very disturbed by is the European Union's response to this, where you've had quite a few and some quite senior members of the European Parliament that want to place sanctions on Tucker Carlson. Like As a result of this, he may not be allowed to visit the European Union ever again. But they began discussing this even before the interview was out, before they'd even seen it. And, and like Mihailo said, he pushes back on Putin at some points. At the end of the interview, he really pushes him quite hard on releasing an American journalist uh, that he held hostage and calling him out even on some of the lies that he tells about this journalist being a spy. But Europe, no, you like you go and interview someone that they don't think you you should interview and they want to ban you. One MP said Carlson is not being a real journalist since he has expressed sympathy for the Russian regime and Putin. And I, you know, I don't see eye to eye with with Tucker Carlson when it comes to Russia and Ukraine. But the idea that I disagree with you, therefore, you are not a real journalist and therefore we should place sanctions on you. And like, that's chilling. And actually, in terms of this, should he go visit, like at some point, if you're a democracy, you have to trust that your citizens are not idiots. And when they hear somebody saying Poland started World War II because they both would and would not collaborate with the Nazis, they can know that guy is talking nonsense. Like, I'm far more concerned by Europe's reaction, far more concerned that the European Union is just, I don't like this, ban it. Like, that is something chilling there. That's something that Trumpet editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry had a really strong article on this week. I think that could well be a, a one of our landmark articles from this year. The EU's war on free speech. I think that's a really important article going at, you know, and then this came in, I think, the day after that article was published, really underscoring that spirit within Europe of we will not tolerate dissent. You disagree from us. We want to ban you. That says something, you know, who is really the Putin friend? I mean, they're the ones that are behaving like Vladimir Putin if they want to just ban a journalist for disagreeing with him. That says something critical about the spirit rising in Europe. That's a powerful point you make. I mean, we're used to the free circulation of of materials and goods across the seas and ports of this planet. And we're starting to see that under threat and imagine what a world would look like where any ship can can you know no longer can any ship sail freely throughout the, throughout the the seven seas we're also used to a fairly free circulation of information especially in the western world and 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 the problems that come with that but but certainly the the benefits uh, which far outweigh it just the free circulation and then based on your education and your morality you can make your judgments. You don't make, you're not uh, consigned to make judgment based on manipulated, censored, uh, withheld information, free circulation of information. Now we are seeing, even in the Western countries and certainly in Europe, an open attempt to ban, to censor information and whatever the merits of this particular interview, as you say, this type of reaction, this this control of information that uh, China already exercises in a, in a horrendous way over its people is something that the EU is making a, making an open grab at. And I, and I say that understanding that in the United States, we, <laughs> the land of the free information, uh, we are guilty of, of uh, engaging in, in a lot of that as well. So that's something to keep an eye on a lot of a lot of much larger ramifications 
uh, revealed in different aspects of this this particular interview. So it's the interview of Tucker Carlson of Vladimir Putin, president of Russia. That's all the time we've got for the roundtable. We'll go ahead and leave it there. We thank you for listening. We thank our panel, which is uh, Richard Palmer, you heard there last, Mihailo Zekic, sitting next to him at our studio in Edstone, England, as well as Andrew Miller here in Edmond, Oklahoma, and Jeremiah Jacques. We thank them. We thank Parker Campbell, who's here with us every week, manning the recording, and Isaac Lorenz, who puts it all together for us and posts it online. So thank you to the team, and we thank you most of all for being part of our team as a listener every week to the Trumpet Hour Week in Review.